Um, Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 this morning. We're going to be finishing off this chapter and uh, finishing it off with a topic that is practical and personal to every one of you. And I don't think I'm over-exaggerating that because it's the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness, one of the great values of the kingdom, near and dear to Christ's heart. Forgiveness. It's been said that To forgive someone makes you like God. Put another way, you're never more like God than when you forgive somebody. It's grace. It's mercy. And it's something that we all have to contend with because we get hurt. We get sinned against. Things happen. Life gets Difficult, wherein animus is built between you and someone else, angst. And then you're faced with the incredible crossroads of what am I going to do about that? Am I going to harbor that and allow that seed of bitterness to grow and for me to be harmed inside my own heart because I'm unwilling to deal with whether I'm going to forgive that person or not? You can live in denial and it can just chip away at your own heart, your own peace. How can I forgive? How can I, here's the question, keep forgiving someone when they keep sinning against me? When is enough is enough? And I'm just going to now shut the door and protect myself from being hurt anymore. How do we forgive? Well, this text unlocks forgiveness in a way that we can't ignore. In fact, the illustration that Jesus gives, the story that we're going to work through is, I think, the pinnacle story on forgiveness in all of the Bible. It's an incredible story of forgiveness. People value a lot of things. When we had COVID hit our culture, and it feels like it's you know been now years and years and years ago since Our entire society got put on its head and it was awkward to walk in a store and what can you do and not do? What can you touch and not touch? Where can you cough? Where can you not cough? I mean, you know, do I need to leave the restaurant because the water went down the wrong way? I mean, that's real and that's recent. And it became so escalated so quickly because people are afraid to die. They're afraid of eternity. They're afraid of getting sick and they, they value health like it's their God. And health, if you were to ask people in a survey, do you want your health or do you want forgiveness? Do you want to deal with staying alive or staying alive spiritually? I think people would choose physical health over being forgiven of all their sins 99 out of 100 times. People want to stay alive. But the greatest gift that we can be given is not health, but forgiveness, being fully forgiven. This is what we want for our kids. This is what we want for our spouse. This is what we want for our friends. If pushed all the way to the deepest level of our our core of our being, we want people to be healthy, happy. We don't want bad things to happen to them, obviously, but we want their hearts to be whole in the Lord. It's the, I heard this on a Shapiro sort of podcast, you know, the thing that The thing that matters most to us are written on the epithets of uh, tombstones. You know, I was a good wife, good husband, good father, good mother. It's, It's having your kids around you at your deathbed scene where you say, what really mattered? What mattered is... It, from a Christian's perspective, is that everyone is reconciled with, with each other, and most of all, they're reconciled with God. 
That's what matters. And that's what Jesus is highlighting here is one of the great values of the kingdom. Matthew 18, we've been talking about having the faith as a child, being humble like a child is, is a value. Humility, verses one to four. And then the idea of uh, being, being right with God and dealing very seriously with our sin, verses seven to nine. And then being rescued, uh, verses 10 through 14, this incredible rescue mission that's, that's modeled in the gospel. And then rescuing each other in the body of Christ is another value of the kingdom in the stages of church discipline, which is really spiritual restoration. And now this great final value in this teaching stream of Christ is forgiveness. And the whole issue of talking about the stages of discipline, where you're calling somebody out for their sin, it just kind of builds right into what Peter is going to ask Jesus about forgiveness. The, the, the discussion of forgiveness is tied to the issue of church discipline. Because when people come back from a lot of sin or they've hurt you in deep ways, you're faced with reconciling that on a heart level and whether or not you have the capacity anymore to do that. Let me begin by reading it. I'm just going to read the first two verses in this section just to get us started. It builds the scenario. It says, then Peter, verse 21, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. By the way, the English Standard Version says 70 times. The literal Greek that I think is more true to what Jesus said in the New American Standard Version is 70 times 7. Who's heard it that way? It's like, how many times do you forgive? Well, 490 times. <laughs> Jesus is just blowing up the discussion, just saying, look, if we're going to look at this in terms of quantity and measurement and how many times, not three, but let's double it. Let's make it, you know, more than double. Let's make it seven and Peter's going, man, I'm doing a lot here. I want to make this forgiveness magnanimous. Jesus says, you're missing the whole boat. This is not about quantity. It's quality of forgiveness. It's talking about a heart that's willing to inexhaustibly forgive. Exhaustively forgive. It's a limitless forgiving. You say, but I only have capacity to do three. Well, maybe seven. I can do seven. But if you hurt me the eighth time, I'm done. Jesus is going, no, it's 70 times seven. To be forgiven is amazing. It's been said 75 pictures in the Bible are portrayed, portraying forgiveness. Here's a modernized list of some of them. To forgive is to turn a key, open the cell door, to let the prisoner free. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt nothing owed. To forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare the person not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be retrieved. To forgive is to take out the garbage and dispose of it, leaving the house fresh and clean. To forgive is to loose the anchor and set the ship free to sail. To forgive is to grant full pardon to a condemned and sentenced criminal. To forgive is to loosen the stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. To forgive is to sandblast a wall of graffiti, leaving it looking brand new. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be put together again. These are biblical pictures of forgiveness. Proverbs 19.11, a man's foolishness is not to forgive. Forgiving is canceling a debt. If you've ever had a debt canceled, a note that says your debt is forgiven, you never forget it. 
If you've ever had someone who seems to be outside of ever reconciling, who then you reconcile with, who says, please forgive me for that sin and owns it, and you reconcile, you never forget that either, even more. What are we talking about here? We're talking about sin guilt being solved. This is the focus of our text. Jesus is addressing the 12, and Peter is the spokesperson, and he's basically posing the question, when is enough enough? When, when is it now not, no longer unconditional forgiveness? When does someone cross the line? Again, childlike humility, radical amputation, sacrificial rescue, these are all values of the kingdom. Affectionate holiness, this is kingdom work within the church where you're reconciling, now it's unconditional forgiveness. This is a conversation with Jesus. That's what's on display here. And I've kind of made the outline this. Jesus' conversation takes four turns. Proving forgiveness is necessarily unconditional. It's a conversation. It's going to take four turns. And it's proving that forgiveness is by necessity unconditional. It just is what it is. If you have spiritual forgiveness, it's limitless. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus just blows that up. The reason Peter is saying it this way, seven, is he's trying to double, more than double what he thought was required of him. In Amos, if you know of that minor prophet, there's a repeated phrase over and over that the rabbis built the tradition that you really are only owed three times to forgive someone. And, you know, verse 3 of Amos 1, for three transgressions of Damascus. Verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza. Um, verse 9, three transgressions of Tyre. Three transgressions of Edom. Verse 13, transgre- three transgressions of the Ammonites. For three transgressions of Moab, chapter 2. Um, verse 1 and then verse 4, transgressions of Judah. You can give them three shots. Three strikes and you're out. Three transgressions of Israel. Verse 6, it goes from there. Three times. Job said a similar thing where he speaks of forgiveness. And he said, Job thirty-three twenty-nine. Behold, God does all things twice, three times with a man. He does all these things. He'll give you three shots. We're thankful for Peter, aren't we? Aren't you thankful that he was impetuous? Aren't you glad that he just would rush in and say something to Jesus, just put it out there? It's all the extroverts. I hate myself for being an extrovert. I just, you know, you just go for it. But it, it kind of opens up the issue because Jesus wants to address that this is not the point to put a time fuse or, a, or an amount fuse, I should say, on forgiveness. You can't make this a numerical issue. You have to keep the heart open. Peter's representing the group. He's raising this value. Is it inexhaustible or not? And Jesus is saying emphatically that it is. It's not quantity, but it is quality. It's measured in, watch this, the Holy Spirit. If you have a heart that's equipped to forgive, then you can keep forgiving. If you do not have a heart yet that's equipped to forgive, you're going to want to put some fail-safe parameters around it because you're going to want to protect yourself. I don't have capacity to keep doing this. They keep hurting me, and I can't keep forgiving them. 
I might explain it later. I mean, maybe I'll do a little now. The forgiveness is not necessarily meaning that everything goes back to the way it was before. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean that you will even horizontally relate to each other and reconcile. Forgiveness is a matter of the heart first and foremost. It's afe. It means to let go of. We forgive because we've been forgiven. You say, where does that come from? Well, do you remember Jesus on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't have a reconciliation meeting with those who were beating him up and killing him. Not, I mean, the Holy Spirit reconciled a bunch of people later at Pentecost who might have been there, but that forgiveness was vertical. Stephen did the same thing. He, he was saying, in essence, when he was being martyred, Stones were being heaved on his head. He looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Remember that scene in Acts 7? This martyrdom scene. Lord, hold not this sin against them. What about Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Alexander the coppersmith who did me great harm. And he goes and says, but the Lord will repay him for that. I'm letting it go. If you hold on to things and say, well, just hold you at arm's length, it's unresolved, and it's on you, then it really is still on you. (laughs) You think it's on them, but the harboring and the angst and the pressure is still inside unless you deal with it in view of the cross. Ephesians 4, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you, we know forgiveness because we've been, been forgiven so much. And so we can't hold something against someone here on earth. Enumerating faithlessness or is always to our detriment. Enumerating faithfulness is to our detriment. You could count the number who are here this morning and say pass or fail. And that's that's false religion. That's false spirituality. Christianity is a matter of the heart. We come as hearts gathered in worship for him because of grace. And Jesus gives to this pragmatic question, an impossible response. He says, Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times, seven times, literally. You got to keep forgiving no matter what. That's the point. That's the impossible response. 500 forgives, 490, let's just round up. 500 forgives being in the flesh. That'll kill you if you're doing it in the flesh. 500 times, I'm supposed to give back 500 times, give my heart back 500 times to somebody who keeps hurting me? If you do it in the flesh, you can't live that way. It's unsustainable. Luke 17, three and four is a nice parallel. It says, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention, Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. But he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. Some people like to put an accent mark on, well, if he repents, then I'll forgive. Otherwise, I'm good. I mean, there are people we respect in the kingdom that talk that way. I stand ready to forgive. That just doesn't jive with Jesus on the cross. That doesn't jive with Stephen's testimony. It doesn't jive with what Ephesians 4 teaches us, 432, to be tenderhearted. It's an issue, first and foremost, of the heart. Your heart is tender. And so you forgive in a vertical sense because of the Lord. And then when people come to you to reconcile, then, yes, reconciliation forgiveness, 
horizontal forgiveness happens. And it needs the point of Luke's account of what Jesus is saying is that forgiveness is involuntary. If someone genuinely seeks your forgiveness, you forgive them. You don't say, well, you know, I've got this record of wrong that I want to kind of list off to you. Have you crawl back to me and grovel? That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's without hesitation. It's integrity-based. And you're letting go of bitterness. You're not letting it control your life. Even unspeakable wounds that are there and scars that are there, and they might remain. The gospel is present. Jesus' template in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as, he is forgive, as we forgive our debtors. So you're, you're thinking, Lord, I am trusting in the cross of Christ for all of my sins, the sins that I have committed, am committing, will commit. Forgive my debts, and my heart is to always be forgiving my debtors. Forgiveness floods out of us because it's really not from us. Our forgiveness is from the Lord. There's ways that the world deals with unforgiveness. They do three things. These are three things I just thought of. See if you resonate with them. People prescribe all kinds of distractions to ignore forgiving. Medications, entertainment, immorality, bad relationships. Ways to just kind of block out your need to forgive. Number two, how about vengeance? People want their pound of flesh. Hey, if I can just get them back on the scale that they got me, then I'll be at peace. Does that sound familiar? Every movie? I mean, come on. That's revenge. People want justice. I want justice. That's spiritual. <laughs> All justice is in the Lord. You, you, for, you love your enemies. You pray for those that persecute you. You do not revile in return, and you let the Lord avenge the wrong. Third, how about self-forgiveness? I need a catharsis. I will love myself. I need to forgive myself. That's what's going wrong with me. And so I'll work through this self-forgiveness process. I forgive me as my own priest of my own life, and then I'll be good. Then, I, then things will be reconciled even if they're not. All these are dead-end streets, and they'll deaden the spirit in your own life. Peter's proposal is a fourth option. It's the religious option. Let's just, uh, let's do it seven times. Obey the law by twice. It's a measurement of grace. I can give that measure of grace and no more. If you do that, you'll run out so quickly and you'll close the door of your own heart to anyone. And you'll justify it in your own pride. That's the problem. I did it seven times. Well, I did it eight. It's incredible. You're amazing. No, it, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. All right, the indicting illustration. Let's look at this. I'm going to read verses 23 to 34. This is Jesus' story that explains what he means. Look at verse 24 or 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. It's an amazing story got some twists and turns in it. This is the third turn in the conversation. It's the indicting illustration. Scenario one presents the problem, verses 23 to 25. The therefore at the beginning of 23 ties it to the immediate context saying this is Jesus' explanation to what quality of forgiveness looks like. In other words, it's unconditional. It's from the heart. That's the issue. All true forgiveness is unconditional. It's from the heart. That's what Jesus is illustrating here. He begins with a king. The king is a monarch. This is not a democracy scene. This is a monarch who's collecting taxes, not nefariously, but honestly. He's sending his servants out to collect taxes, and someone is discovered. It's a father. It's a husband. And he's very delinquent. You say, well, $10,000? $10,000? Is that? No. 10,000 talents. These are 10,000 bags of gold, which means... You could buy like a, a region with that amount of money. You say, what kind of money are we talking about? How about $3.4 billion? That's what one website, you know, sort of comparison made. It's a king's ransom. It's, it's an unpayable amount of debt. It's 200,000 days of labor. It's... Uh, or 200,000 years of labor, I should say. 10,000 is the word myrias, or where we get the word myriads in Revelation 5, the myriads and myriads of angels, 10,000 upon 10,000s of angels, an uncountable amount of money. That's what we're talking about. This is something that could not be paid. One person asked me from first hour, how did a king that was that good allow somebody to get that indebted to him in the first place? Well, how, and this is how we reconciled it together between services. How can a God so good allow us to be so utterly sinful against him in the first place and not strike us dead? That's the point. The point is it's an amazing chasm that is forgiven only in a way that a king with autonomous Full authority to do so could. This is full forgiveness that's coming. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is the spiritual realm, is compared to a king who's settling accounts. When he began to settle, one was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold. At first, here's the punishment. Be sold and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So you're already a slave, but you are a slave with all of your family in a way that is a horrible plight. It's a debt that'll never be paid off. Your quality of life is over. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees. You have a problem, 
you have a plea that comes. So the servant fell on his knees, verse 26, imploring him. This is begging. Falling on the knees is, is uh, the word proskuneo. It's a bowed worship. It's being prostrate before God. Fell on his knees in a worship posture saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. There's integrity behind this plea. I'm going to give you back everything. Somehow, some way, I'll do it. This is the heart that's responding to his desperate situation. It's a cry of desperation. It's a posture of self-pity, but it's also a posture that's saying, I'm taking responsibility. So many in our culture claim victim status. They want their college loans just paid back by the government. But Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. Second Thessalonians 3.10. He's saying, I'll work it off. What happens? Verse 27, there's pity that's poured out. This is the Greek word splognos, which is from the guts. It says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Released and forgave. You're out of your situation I'm releasing you from the obligation and I'm, I'm forgiving the full debt. I'm releasing you from being this level of slave with all of your family, with all of this repayment. I'm taking that off of you and I'm declaring your debt gone, paid, done. Where did it come from? This pronouncement came from his heart because he was moved. So he let go of the burden. It's a magnanimous gesture. This is all contrasted by scenario two. Scenario two begins in verse 28. Look down with me. And But when that same servant, same slave, no time lapse between scenario one and scenario two. It's just right away. When the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Three months wage. Maybe three and a half. 20,000 bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. What does the slave that had been forgiven so much do? I don't think his heart changed at all. I think his repentance was superficial. He seizes and chokes the guy that owes him. He owes what he could never pay. He's forgiven. He receives it as cheap grace. Oh, I deserve it anyway. Oh, this person owes me. I'm never going to get in debt again. I'm going to choke this guy. I'm going to choke him out. I'm going to put him in debtor's prison. I'm going to get what's mine. Time and truth go hand in hand. It really was revealing the state of this forgiven slave's heart. His heart was hard. His heart was hard. He was volatile. He was angry. And I think the reason he put that guy in jail is his own guilt. We try to incarcerate our own guilt. We try to make something happen to, to make our hearts get steady again. This demand reveals also his greed for money. You can love money even if you don't have it. He's saying, pay what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. This is the plea back, have patience with me. He says the exact same thing that the Slave had said to his master in scenario one, have patience with me, I'll pay. This guy actually could pay it back. There's no grace given. No mercy there. He sends him to 
the debtor's prison. In terms of pity, there is none. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. In other words, you're in there, you can't really pay it out, and so you're stuck there. It's a massive disparity between scenario one and that forgiveness and the master's soft heart and this slave who'd been forgiven, who then is displaying a hard heart, a hard heart. The master was soft, the slave was hardened, and it was revealed by what he did to his own peer. Refused to forgive and put him into a perpetual indebtedness. Well, look at the two pronouncements. There's two pronouncements here. There's a peer pronouncement, verse 31. It says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. They're distressed because they knew that this man had been forgiven so much and then turned on their friend, turned on their friend and they give a report. They tell on him. They're distressed. They're upset because of the level of hypocrisy being too much for them to stomach. They could not sit idle with what had happened. Look at the master's pronouncement, verse 32. Then, the master, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. This is righteous indignation, by the way. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Shouldn't you have seen this? What's wrong with your heart? Now, one of two things is going on here. Either because Christ is talking to Peter, who is genuinely forgiven. This is a one for one for Peter's experience where he was forgiven so much. The magnanimous gesture of grace where his heart was changed. And we know Peter to be a believer. And so if you're forgiven much and then you harden up at this level, then you've kind of sent yourself to be tortured by God's chastening hand. But I don't think that's what's going on here. It's plausible. People take that position. I think what this is, is it's exposing somebody who thinks that they are saved. They think that they have received the incredible grace of God, but they don't stay merciful. So it's proving that they really didn't get a changed heart in the first place. They're like Judas Iscariot. It's the danger of playing church and saying, oh, I've been forgiven so much. I'm free and I'm gospel oriented. But if somebody crosses me, <laughs> if you mess with me, you're done. And I'll put a legalistic stricture on it. I'll forgive you three times, maybe seven. But beyond that, I'm done. That's works righteousness. That's false religion. That's not the attitude of a changed heart. And look how severe it is what his master does um, to this slave who was supposedly forgiven in the first place, but is revealing that he has a hard heart. Verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The word jailers there is torturers. Righteous indignation sent to torturers until he should pay all his debt, which is now saying you are in debtor's prison, which is hell. You're in this continual perpetual state of paying against something that you can never make up. I think that's what's going on here with this pronouncement. Jailers are the angels of God. Matthew chapter 25, the sheep goats judgment where the angels are taking the goats to hell. 
The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this about this text. Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of a heavenly father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly. Neither should we. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says it's impossible to renew somebody to repentance if they've been exposed to so much light, so much word, so much truth. They've tasted so much goodness, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. What does that mean? It means they never were saved in the first place. They looked good, and then they just drifted off into outer space spiritually. To restore them again to repentance is impossible. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. It's the idea of trampling over the Son of God again. Eventually there is a point of no return according to Hebrews 6. William Barclay said Christ's parable teaches certain lessons. It teaches the lesson which runs through the New Testament. A man must forgive in order to be forgiven. That sounds like works righteousness. If you don't understand it in the way Jesus taught it. Remember, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7. What does that mean? It means you're merciful because God's changed your heart. And if you have a a changed heart, you're going to give mercy. If you don't have a changed heart, you're not going to be merciful. Not inexhaustibly. It's all about whether or not God has changed your heart. And the big test is whether or not you can be a forgiver. Are you someone who's characterized by forgiving and forgiveness? Remember, you're never more like God than when you forgive You're willing to let stuff go. You're willing to, in your heart, let them out of jail. Say, is that soft-selling sin and not looking at Is that not dealing with reality? No, I mean, things might change in the nature of your relationship, but you're leaving them with the Lord. You're not harboring ill will against anyone. That's the joy of the Christian life, is there's vertical and horizontal dimensions at the same time all the time. I, you know, I'm like you. I go through difficult things. I'm hurt when people hurt me or revile or do something or take a shot. I have to evaluate my own heart. Is that, a, is that true about me or not? I mean, I understand all those things. But ultimately, everyone's made in the image of God. And so I, by and large, just love everyone all the time. No matter what their posture is towards me, I just love them back. And it's involuntary because I know from whence I came. I know my own sin. I know what I was forgiven of. I know what God did for me. So how can I harbor ill will against someone else, even if they're sinning against me? That's the point. The ultimate principle is defined in verse 35. It's sort of the teaching and bookends of this illustration. So also, verse 35 says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you. That's scary, by the way. We'll do what? Well, what was just said? You'll be delivered to torturers and put in debtor's prison, every one of you, if you do not forgive. An unforgiving person doesn't go to heaven. Hard-hearted people are barred from heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven, but you have to be transformed with a new heart. You have to be fit for heaven. And the new heart is... Proven by being a forgiver. Say, I don't want to forgive. Well, examine your heart. See where you are. Repent of that. Christians will harden their hearts sometimes, right? Things happen. But you got to work on it. You got to want to work on it. If you don't want to work on your heart, that's 
That's scary time. That's where you have to examine yourself and say, no, I need to be soft in my heart. God blesses the merciful. We've received so much mercy, so we give mercy. Peter was in a vulnerable condition. That's what this is exposing. Verse 21 was about Peter. He was named. I'll do it seven times. Lord, I'm great. He's like a child saying, hey, I can do it. Jesus is saying, no, it's not about how many. It's about whether your heart is soft always to forgive. It's being merciful. Don't be like Judas Iscariot. Don't fake yourself out. Don't ignore the gospel. Be open. Jesus wasn't talking to Pharisees in this text. He was talking to people who are professing believers. Professing believers have to be called into account to say, you never come to a point where enough is enough. I'm just going to harden up towards somebody. We don't get to do that. What's the issue? Well, it's the last phrase of verse 35. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart. We forgive our brothers from the heart. We forgive those who sin against us from the heart. A transformed heart. It's why we forgive. Practically speaking, this doesn't mean when you forgive someone that everything goes back to the same way it was before. Trust has to be rebuilt. Trust might be broken in certain vocations or opportunities or even in ministry that might not be the same after sins, particular sins are committed. Scenarios can change and vary. But in terms of the matter of the heart towards someone, you give full and free forgiveness. Full and free, unconditional ocean-like gospel forgiveness. It all comes down to having a soft heart. Soft hearts enter heaven. Hard hearts do not. Christ's mercy is the difference. People sin against us, and we're called to cover things, not to remember things. I know that you know, there are scars or traumatic things that happen that we remember. But the point is to say, I'm laying it at your feet, Lord, and I'm not going to remember a sin against somebody. I'm going to leave judgment and justice in your hands. That's how we're set free, as we forgive.